The True Ambition Podcast with John Zink is brought to you by IT Avalon. IT Avalon, IT staffing and professional services done right. Visit our sponsor at itavalon.com. Now, welcome to True Ambition. Hey everybody, welcome to the True Ambition Podcast. My name is John Zink, and I am honored to be joined today by uh, Mr. Chris Genowin. Uh He is the Senior Director of Oracle Cloud, and uh, he's also a friend of mine, uh, lives out in uh, the Phoenix, Arizona area. How are you doing? I'm great. How are you doing, John? Great to connect I'm with you. I'm doing wonderful. As you can see behind him, he's got a couple of musical instruments, so... Obviously, we're going to break into song here in just a little bit. <laughs> so, um, Chris, he and I met, I don't know, eight, nine, ten years ago, something like that. I think uh, my wife, Carissa, was uh, working with you when you were over at Safeway. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, we were trying to source a, a really difficult position uh, for my automation team at that point in time. And, uh, you know, I had done a lot of work with Carissa. And she leaned on you to, you know, find the right person at the right time that ended up, you know, being a godsend for what we needed. Um, ultimately, it led to a couple more people coming into into Safeway with that. Well, there's a backstory behind that because I was just starting my company then, and uh, Carissa was like, "Oh my God, I got these positions over at Safeway, and they can't fill it. This company that she was with before, and uh, and I'm starving." <laughs> you know, at the time, I said, well, let me try. So uh, she talked to uh, her then employer and they said, sure, whatever, uh, figuring that I couldn't fill them. But uh, I figured I, I filled like three of them. And thank God, because uh, if it weren't for those positions getting filled, I probably wouldn't have this company today. Yeah. Yeah, no, it, it was a great opportunity and led to, you know, a lot of doors opening up for you guys as well um, with continued, you know, opportunities. Um I brought that with me to Oracle as well. Um, and you know, I've always viewed you guys as, you know, one of those value types of um, partners, you know, helping me out. And, you know, what I've learned is we scratch each other's backs. You know, it's, it's really about bonding that partnership yeah. between our companies. You know? So now uh, you've got uh, BS from the University of Northern, Col- uh, Northern Colorado. Yep. Colorado boy, raised through and through. You were born and raised in Denver, right? I was. Were yep. you downtown Denver or were you suburbs or where were you at? Uh, kind of lived all around. So I was born outside of Denver in a town called Inglewood and uh, lived there for a number of years. As I got older, we moved farther out from uh, Denver to a town called Parker, which is a one stop sign kind of town um, or was back then. It's not anymore. Um, met my wife there and, you know, through our years or decades of living in Colorado, we kind of lived all over, you know, went to university there. I lived up in Breckenridge for a number of years while I was a ski bum and, um, you know, the rest is history. So now you, uh, you mentioned her, your, your wife is named Jane and, yep. uh, we've actually all four of us, Carissa, Jane, yourself and myself have all golfed together before and we're all amazing golfers. <laughs> on some days I can hit a ball. Yes. <laughs> yeah, well, be- better than me, most likely. And then, uh, kids are chase and Alyssa. 
And yep. first time ever, we've got a tortoise in the family that is also a lawnmower. That is exactly right. So we acquired Trooper the tortoise um, shortly after we moved in. Our neighbors were moving away. They couldn't bring Trooper with them. And uh, so we quickly learned that Trooper likes to mow the grass. You know, her primary source of food is Bermuda grass. So um, she helps out with keeping the lawn trim. You know, in Arizona, we don't have a huge yard, so easy enough to do. You know, it'd been great if the tortoise's name was Snapper. <laughs> or Toro, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, first question I got, because uh, we're recording this at the turn of uh, the year. It's uh, 2021 now. What goal do you hope to accomplish in 2021? Yeah, that's an interesting one. Um, 2020 was really a unique year for a lot of people. Um, and it was a unique year for me, both personally as well as professionally. Um, if I look at uh, kind of what happened to me professionally over the course of the past year, I went from a very traditional IT organization um, where um, my responsibilities were much greater than what they are now, um, where I was involved with employee support through a service desk, where I looked at the entire IT service management suite, so change management, incident management, um, as well as I ran programs like um, completely transforming the IT organization from waterfall to agile. So a lot of different kind of balls in motion. Oracle, um, about six months ago, really made a concentrated effort around our cloud environment. And that's where my professional career really pivoted, that they needed somebody with um, a higher level of maturity to come in and kind of you know, set this framework for how Oracle's cloud is going to you know, really be that next lead player in the cloud business out there. Um, so I have that unique opportunity to take a lot of my experience over the past almost three decades and apply those into a very pointed position within the Oracle Cloud business. Um, so it's challenged me a lot to, to go from a very broad spectrum of responsibilities now to really being laser focused. And, you know, it's, you know, even though it's laser focused, it's changing on an hourly basis because we as a, a core business have to change that rapidly in the cloud. Um, so I've kind of had to, to retool myself, retrain myself in different ways of working. Um, and so 2020 was a challenge for me that, you know, I had to tap into pieces of how I work that I haven't done in 20 years. You know, thinking like a startup, um, being extremely agile and nimble and being, you know, acceptable of throwing work away, you know, when that didn't work. Um, so a lot of it, um, you know, challenged me as an individual, challenged me as a professional within the company. Um, you know, personally, you know, obviously with everything that happened around the world, um, you know, different ways of working, different ways of connecting with people, um, really coming up with ways to, foster healthy relationships. I think that challenged all of us, you know, in 2020. So if I look at, you know, 2021 and, and, you know, kind of where this brings me, I think it really exploits what I learned in 2020. 
Um, it's a new year. It's a new me. It's a new opportunity. And I always look for that next opportunity to where I can influence myself, influence others, and really bring value to those around me. Um, so a lot of what I'm focused on this year are around that charter. You know, how can I make others more successful in this different way of working? Well, that kind of uh, leads into a question I've got too, was with this new way of working and this new way of thinking that everybody has to mm-hmm. go through with the quote unquote new normal. Um, how, how have you seen that affect uh, the way that we're working now? Has it affected um, your organization's productivity? You know, that, that's a common question that I talk with a lot of my peers outside of the company um, in terms of how has this new working environment changed productivity of the workforce? People don't have a commute into an office anymore. So what we see are people are logging in earlier in the day. They're logging out later in the day. Um, they're accomplishing a lot more than what they did in the traditional work environment. My concern with, with that whole thing, and really what I try to emphasize with my staff, is that you have to have a healthy work-life balance. Just because you're not in the car commuting doesn't mean that empowers you or entitles you to log in an hour early because you don't have that commute, you know, spend that time with your family instead and, you know, continue fostering those types of relationships. Um, Burnout is always a concern. You know, when you see people working more hours, you know, just because you work more more doesn't mean that you're working smart. Right. So, um, you know, you have to keep a, a close eye on that, you know, especially when you're, you know, talking with those that you work with on a daily basis, you have to have a keen eye for when people are tired and give them some extra time off. Let them refocus on themselves um, because it's it's a challenge. The other dynamic, which is really different, um, and I see people are struggling with it all the time, is they're missing the human connection. So, yes, you can have a Zoom meeting. You can, you know, have dialogue kind of video to video. But that doesn't replace somebody, you know, stopping you in the hallway saying, hey, you know, can we brainstorm on something? Can we try to work on a problem together? Or, hey, can we whiteboard? You know, so the human connection aspect of it is starting to kind of fade a little bit, um, which is concerning. You know, so you have to come up with new ideas or new ways to, you know, build that camaraderie across your team and make sure that people are still connected, you know, and whether that's through, you know, a virtual happy hour, whether that's through a virtual team building event, or if it's, you know, through some other mechanism, um, you know, we have like um, shared movie nights where, you know, we'll, we'll broadcast a movie and people kind of log into that and we talk about it as, as the movies happen. That's cool. Yeah. But I've seen the same thing here. You know, I, I own an IT staffing company, and uh, when COVID first hit back in March, we're like, oh, shit, what's going to happen now? Oh, boy, here we go. And then moved everybody swiftly to working remotely. And a lot of our people already were. Um, but I was very, very pleasantly surprised to see how productive everybody was. And the better part of that is how happy everybody is with not commuting, uh, with being able to 
just kind of have the autonomy to do their job as they need to do it, you know, and, uh, and before uh, the pandemic hit, it was about three or four months prior to that, I did a blog that was talking about remote workforce. And by 2024, they were already saying before this that over 50% of the workforce was going to be working remotely, at least part of the time by 2024. As soon as the pandemic hit, you know, boom, that just took it to right here and now today. Um, what do you see in the future uh, when it does go back to a normal after we either get a vaccine or herd immunity or whatever happens? Do you see it going back to everybody working on site or is it going to kind of stay the way it is today or a hybrid? I think it's going to be hybrid. Um, we're going to see the number of actual offices um, be reduced, you know, in terms of retail and um, those types of businesses. They're going to get reinvented. Um, so what I, what I would probably estimate is 80% of the workforce will have some sort of remote format, whether that's complete remote or partially remote. And we're already seeing some of the big companies start to do this. You know, if you look at what Amazon announced, what Microsoft announced, what Oracle announced, all of these companies are embracing remote. And they're embracing it because they are seeing productivity levels go up. They are seeing um, people being able to do their job with minimal supervision um, or supervision in the traditional sense, I should say. Um, and that employees are happy. You know, they don't have that commute. You're starting to see employees move out of some of the big cities, the high cost cities. Um, and companies are allowing their employees to relocate to lower cost areas. Um, why? Because it's making the employee happy and they're still able to get the job done. Um, you know, I, I laugh with, with Jane all the time saying that, you know, she's teaching a young workforce. She is a teacher, but, um, She's teaching a young workforce for jobs that have not even been invented yet. And, you know, the eighth graders that she does teach, that's very true. You know, if they're going into tech, well, tech's all going to be automated, you know, by the time that they join the workforce. If you look at how some of the technology has molded how we do work, things like Slack, things like Zoom, things like, um, you know, these artificial intelligence platforms that are coming out. Um, everything's bot-driven. We're allowing systems to code systems. So the way that we do work is going to be very different in a number of years. And um, I think as we get into the two-year, three-year, four-year mark, the traditional business model that we see out there, whether that's retail, whether that's restaurants, whether that's service, like what we do, um, will be dramatically different. Yeah, it's, su it's such an interesting time to... Um be a part of history, you know, because I, yep. I go back to when I first started in recruiting, you know, 96 and, uh, you know, um, it was, I pretty much did nothing but place RPG AS 400 mainframe programmers back then, you know, you know why? Because I can remember RPG and AS 400, you know, and I, I, I didn't have it. Oh yeah. Well, I didn't, I didn't have a computer on my desk. I just had a phone and I had a newspaper 
You know, in the morning I called and did sales calls. In the afternoon, I called and recruited people. And uh, to see um, the the maturing of the industry and see where technology has taken us, you know, from working and not having a computer on my desk to having a super powerful computer in my hand 24 hours a day to pretty much run my life so I'm pretty much half of a cyborg, you know, is, is unbelievable. And uh, to see where it's going to go for my kid, you know, he's two and a half years old, to see what's going to happen down the road, it's super exciting, you know, and it's, uh, it's, pretty, it's pretty cool to be a part of it right now. Yeah, when I teach agile classes, one of the analogies I always use is we are at a time right now that is very similar to the time that the gasoline engine was invented. So think about how that engine changed the entire society, how it changed basically the way industry was done, how manufacturing was done, how transportation was done. I mean, everything kind of pivoted as soon as we had combustible engines out there. We're at that same point now. We see that with a lot of the way that technology is changing but we also see that with kind of the demands of the workforce too, you know, and you look at the Gen Xers, the Gen Zs and some of these new thought processes that they're bringing into the workforce. It's stuff we never thought about, Yeah. Um, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago. Yeah, it's great. So um, I got a question here. I've got a few questions that uh, I just kind of uh, throw in here and uh, it kind of goes into, it's a good segue off of the question we just talked about. So, if you had the choice and the option, would you rather meet your great-great-grandparents or would you rather meet your great-great-grandchildren? That's an interesting one. Um, you know, I, I think if I had the choice, I would probably want to meet my great-great-grandchildren. Um, and the reason why is that... Yeah, they would have the ability to do things like change my thought process or um, share, you know, what's what's happening, you know, in in you know, how would I even describe that? So so the family dynamics, the pods, you know, basically the way that that we see things in two generations from now is going to be so much different than how we operate today. Yeah. So for me, you know, I'm always looking for that change that happens tomorrow. So I think that's kind of where I'm going. I knew you were going to say that when I, when I was, when I was writing out the question, I'm like, I, I know he's going to say that. Cause it, I, I would actually go back and meet my great, great grandparents because yeah. I was adopted. Um, my my maternal grandfather died when my mom was eight years old. I just don't know a whole bunch of people and have no clue about my history. So I would go back and meet them just to see where the hell I came from, you know. But uh, um, it was a tough one when I found that question, and it's uh, it's an interesting one. So, like me, as people can see, you are a musician. So uh, the question is, who's in your playlist today? <laughs> today, uh, you know, it, it changes every single day. Um, 
So today I started out the day with um, some retro punk. Um, and um, that was kind of what I wanted to listen to to get my blood boiling this morning, you know, get me motivated to go. Um, I love the, you know, the three chord punk bands um, that just, they have a good rhythm. They, they have a good beat and, um, you know, they get me excited. Um, but, you know, day to day it changes. My, my musical preferences are so broad. So um, yesterday, for example, um, I was on a indie folk list. So, you know, listening to like the Indigo Girls and Dixie Chicks and, you know, some of those types of bands. Yeah, I, I just I read an article, I was about two or three months ago, and uh, just talked about um, brain activity. If you listen to your favorite song, your brain activity goes through the roof in a positive direction. So it's like for, for all of us musicians, including Ed, who's sitting here recording this right now, he's a keyboard player and we play in a band together. Um, every time I'm r cruising around and I listen to one of my favorite songs, it takes me back to that first time I ever heard it. It takes me into a great place in my head and I can get so much more done. You know, so it's like you talk about getting up in the morning, getting your blood boiling. If I put on one of those tunes, I'm good to go. So, so being a musician yourself, can you even narrow yourself down to a favorite song? I can narrow myself down to a few favorite bands. Yeah. You know, um, Live from back in the 90s is one of my favorite bands. Uh, Tool uh, is still one of my favorite bands oh. to this day. Um, and it really comes down to the music and the message. I mean, uh, the, the Tool stuff is so positive and so spiritual and the musicianship is through the roof. Um, yep. when, when I get into that, it just takes me to a different place and live the, the message of all those live songs is so positive and you know, all about forward thinking and peaceful and just like, you know, there's got to be a better way of thinking and a better way of living. That's the kind of stuff that I love. And when I go back to my childhood, my mom loved John Denver and yep. I do too, because he was the same way. You know, it's that forward-thinking, positive music, and it's great music too. Absolutely. I was born and raised on John Denver, so one of my favorites. Um, listen to him, James Taylor, Croce. You know, those guys are some of my favorites. But then I can, on a dime, flip over to Iron Maiden, which is another one of my favorite bands. Oh, it's so you good. Know, I, yeah. I, I love the classically trained rock musicians that can bring a lot of that complex music and, and composition into their work. Yeah. So um, tell me a little bit about uh, growing up in uh, Colorado. Uh, how, how was your childhood? <clears throat> how was my childhood? Well, let's see. Um, I was one of three boys. Um, so three boys, obviously there's a lot of very competitive dynamics. Oldest, um, youngest, where were you? I was the middle son, so I was the troublemaker or the instigator, I should say. Um, and the one that was caught and blamed for everything, pretty much so. Um, you know, grew up in a very healthy family situation. Um, my father worked for IBM for 25 years, and so I was a you know, very early adopter of technology. You know, even back with the old 186, 286 machines, he'd be bringing those home and. I'd be playing around with those. 
my mom was a licensed nurse practitioner uh, focusing in OBGYN. Um, so she would bandage all three of you boys up? Um, <laughs> interestingly enough, you know, she, she never really wanted to practice at home. Um, <laughs> so just bleed out? Her, her focus was uh, OBGYN, but she would always say, oh, it's not broken. Don't worry about it. You know, you're tough. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be tough to practice OBGYN on three boys. <laughs> With three boys, yeah. But it always led to interesting dinner conversations, for sure. <laughs> yeah, um, so three boys, we were all um, into sports. So my older brother and I, back when we were younger, actually my younger brother as well, were all competitive swimmers. Um, my older brother and myself, uh, made it up to the all city, all state kind of level. Um, and I swam all the way through, um, high school into college, did water polo. Um, we also did other sports as well. So in the wintertime, I was a competitive skier, did super G and downhill and GS and a few other events as well. Um, yeah, so I would say growing up, it, it was a great childhood. Um, a lot of adventure, um, a lot of, uh, autonomy. You know, my parents were very supportive of go learn it, you know, go find out more, be adventurous. Um, and they always supported that kind of personality with all of us. So all three boys are, you know, very outgoing in nature. Um, and you know, we've created some very healthy bonds with one another, you know, over the past you know, 30, 40, 50 years. Where are your brothers now? My younger brother still lives in Colorado. Um, so he is married with a set of twins and my older brother is in Portland, Oregon. Are they in technology or what would they go into? Uh, my younger brother is. Um, so, um, he started in technology actually before I did. So that was his emphasis in college and throughout, um, the, the past number of years, he's, um, created a whole bunch of different startups, uh, focused around technology. Uh, he was also uh, one of the um, primary people to help get um, medical marijuana into Colorado. Uh, and some of his business has been focused around that as well. You know, creating solutions that dispensaries and grow houses can all use, um, you know, to, to run their business, essentially. My older brother, um, he went the international path um, and uh, primarily in medical devices. So he does medical device sales and brokering um, primarily between Asia and the U.S. Um, so he's on the road constantly. Kind of segues well into my next question, which was uh, your degrees in international trade and relations. Yep. How did you end up in IT? Great question. So um, coming out of university, um, I was able to land a job with Taco Bell, which was one of Pepsi's subsidiaries. Mm -hmm. And when I joined them, it was under the premise that um, Pepsi requires everybody to work X number of years in one of their subsidiaries before you can go into a corporate or an international position. Um, so I started going down that route. Um, and right at the time when I was about ready to cut over, um, the restaurant divisions were spun off from Pepsi. And um, you know, there were some... some um, kind of requirements to say, well, you can't immediately move. You have to put X number of years in additional to do that. So at the point in time, I was looking for something new. 
And for Taco Bell, I was uh, doing retail operations. Um, so area management with them, primarily around running a number of their stores. Um, and um, a friend of the family uh, was a division president for Safeway. And he said, hey, if you're looking for something new, you know, Safeway is a great company. And I went and had a couple of conversations with folks at Safeway, and it was very family-oriented. Um, there were you know, parents and children all working there um, and, you know, really fostering that, you know, hey, let's develop from within type of environment. So it was really enticing to me to move from a very fast-paced, um, fast-food retail type of environment um, to something like Safeway, which was more global in nature. Um, and something that you know, had a ton of different paths that you could go. Um, and so I started out on the merchandising and procurement side with Safeway. I actually joined them um, as part of their business division. And shortly after joining, um, Safeway started going through a pretty significant merger and acquisition process, buying um, all of these other grocery chains around the U.S. And so I was asked to um, participate in that and help out with the M&A activities. Um, so that was my foot into um, IT. Um, and I helped with data conversion, I helped with process conversion, and helped with some of the training activities with these companies that we purchased. And did that for um, about three years before I formally took a, a position with the mainframe team, which was my real true first IT position. Um, it was something that I saw as really being a huge opportunity for me to challenge myself, to get into something outside of what I knew. I mean, I was introduced to IT as a kid, um, did some basic programming, you know, when I was younger. Um, but it wasn't really until I joined the IT portion of of Safeway until I really learned what IT was. Um, and I grew from there. It, it, it was almost like an instant love affair. Um, I loved the approach. I loved the dynamics of the people. I loved the way that um, what I did positively influenced the company as a whole. And every project that I did, I could see that, you know, everything would come to fruition to say, here's, you know, the, kind of the fruit of my life. So it was really cool. And, you know, I've been doing it now for 25 years. Well, you were at Safeway for, I think, like 17 years, right? Just over 17 years. Uh, How quickly after you went into working on the mainframe did you move into a management position? Uh, it actually happened uh, as I was part of that team. Okay. Um, yeah, so I came in, um, learned some basic um, system programming, um, I renewed the database side of it from the M&A work that I did with the acquisitions. Um, but um, as part of that, I grew into a project manager. Uh, and then from there, grew into a people manager shortly thereafter. So it was all within about a year of being within the team uh, that um, I moved from you know, being that, that technical type of person to managerial. Um, but the unique thing about Safeway is no matter where you went within the company, um, you always had to have a very close handle on the technology that you were responsible for. Um, and 
my mentor at the time, who was the CIO, firmly believed that you shouldn't be in your role for more than three years. So every three years, he would shuffle the entire organization to say, I want to broaden your skills. You should be able to learn the technology underneath you. Leading people is a different situation. You know, you, you're kind of born to lead. Um, but the technology itself, sure, you can learn that. So um, every three years, we'd, we'd be switched around and we'd learn a different piece of technology. And I would work hand in hand with my teams. When you knew that was coming up, uh, as far as that every three years, did you then have to groom somebody to take over your position while you were moving into another spot? Absolutely. You always had succession planning and you always wanted to develop those underneath you for the next, for their next opportunity. Um, and that's a huge passion of mine. I'm not successful unless the people that I work with are successful. So probably 75% of my time is spent developing others you know, for situations like that. And not only with Safeway, but you know, with Oracle now that I do the exact same thing. Um, I'm always mentoring, always coaching. I'm always challenging people to learn a new skill. Um, you know, training is one of my number one passions. If somebody has to be trained on something, they're going to get it. You know, just because I'm a huge supporter of it. Yeah. Well, it goes back to, um, Chris and I were talking about it, um, that I don't know anybody who has said a bad word about you. So it's like, we've, uh, We've been, you know, working with a bunch of different people that know Chris Genuine, and uh, everybody has the same thing. He's the best guy ever, you know, and it just it, it comes back to how you treat people, how you manage people. And, uh, you know, it's just it, it's a great way to go. And I talked to somebody else uh, on this podcast just a, f- a couple weeks ago, said the same thing. He goes, if you're not training people and grooming people to take over your position while you're moving up and doing something else, then you're not really growing. Yeah. And that's spot on. I mean, I, I can't say that people don't speak ill of me from time to time. I mean, talk to my children. Uh, somebody's they, got they, to, they, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it happens, but, but if you're not having the conversation with that person to find out, you know, why there's disagreement or why there's conflict, you know, neither one of you are going to improve. Um, so I have no, no issue whatsoever taking that bull by the horn and, and having that difficult conversation to say, hey, let's talk this out. You know, let's figure out why there is conflict. Um, one of the, the philosophies I've always had is, you know, go into your day in a very even-keeled manner. Um, you know, I, I never raise my voice with people. Um, I always look at things objectively. And probably the most important trait uh, is to be an active listener. You know, too many people jump into conversation. They actively respond. Why? Because they want to be heard or they want their ideas to be heard. Um, When you sit back and you listen, you can have an intelligent response. And because of that, kind of to what you were just talking about, you get a lot more respect from people that you work with because you're letting them share their entire idea. Well, my, uh, my dad... Rich Zink told me a long time ago, you got two ears and one mouth. Use them that way. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, I, I've always tried to um, go w- with that equation. Um, it doesn't always work that way. Sometimes I get a big mouth, but uh, for the most part, I try to 
um, listen to people. Because if you're not listening, you're not learning. You know, and then then you're just a loudmouth who is stupid. So um, going back just a little bit, where do you go to high school? I went to Smoky Hill High School in Aurora. Smoky Hills. Smoky Hill. I'm in the Buffaloes. Okay. So um, were you a good student? Uh, You know, in high school, I was not. Um, I think I graduated high school with, um, I think, a 1.7 GPA, if I can remember correctly. Um, And, you know, for me, it was because I didn't necessarily try. It wasn't that I didn't get the material. Um, It's just I wasn't motivated, I think, is what it was. Um, And um, compare that to you know, university where I graduated summa cum laude, you know, so you find something that really drives your passion and yeah, you're going to devote the time to it. So were you a daydreamer? I was, I, I was, and I was a procrastinator. Um, that was a big issue. Um, when I was in high school, I was also a competitive skier and I ended up missing, oh, probably 50% of my senior year. Um, because I was out on the slopes. Yeah, I was, uh, I was much the same. It's, uh, I'm writing the book right now called true ambition and, uh, going back and looking over my life, man, procrastination, boy, that was uh, a big part of my early life. Um, but if it was something I wanted to do, I was all over it. I got, I got a great story from, I think I was maybe like a sophomore in high school, something like that left school. Uh, my mom and dad both worked during the day and uh, mm-hmm. I went home sick or I called in sick, one of the two. And all I was doing was sitting in my room playing my drums all day long because mom and dad were gone from the house. So all of a sudden in between songs, I took off my headphones and I heard knock, 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 knock on the door. I walked downstairs and it's John Kilpatrick, my principal of the high school. <laughs> he said, get your ass to school. <laughs> so that, that was the end of that. Yeah. Sometimes you need that motivation. Yeah. Oh my God. I'll never forget it. I just open up the door. I'm like, oh, you know, it's not like I could fake like uh, Ferris Bueller that I was uh, sleeping upstairs. Yeah. <laughs> well, as long as you weren't taking out, you know, your friend's dad's Ferrari, I think you're good. <laughs> yeah. I didn't have any friends that had a dad who had a Ferrari. <laughs> Nor did I. <laughs> so, um, whether it be high school, college, whatever, who is your favorite teacher and why? Oh, favorite teacher. Um, I would say my favorite teacher is probably outside of traditional school. Okay. Um, and I'm going to go back to um, the Safeway with David Ching, who was the, the CIO at the time. Um, he is, he was the one that was my mentor and um, he is really one of those few people that kind of sculpted um, how I approach working with teams today. Um, So the whole concept around servant leadership is something which is near and dear, near and dear to my heart. Um, Servant leadership is putting your team ahead of all else. Um, It is empowering your team. It is letting them be a decision maker. And you're there for being the cheerleader. You're there for removing the roadblocks. And so David challenged me 
as an employee um, to rethink how I led teams. Um, you know, you can be a manager or you can be a leader. You know, a manager is going to be their guiding tasks. They are going to oversee the work. Um, if you look at, um, you know, folks like Marquette, who really talk and, and emphasize about the team empowerment, letting them use their intrinsic knowledge, um, then you have a happier workforce, you have a more productive workforce, um, and you as a leader are much happier as well. Um, so David taught me to think about how you work with individuals in the organization, how you work with your friends outside of the organization, um, all by practicing some of these techniques around, you know, empowering others to really guide success. I love it. Now, on the other side of things, what is the worst job you've ever had? Telemarketing, without a doubt. I've done it too. It's horrible. I, I lasted three days. Um, <laughs> and it, it's the only job that, you know, I didn't try to make a go at it. Um, it was... Um, it was just so bad being yelled at every single call and, you know, for minimum wage, this was in between, I think summers in high school, maybe that I took this job, um, that I just couldn't do it. You know, I, I came home crying for three days saying enough's enough. <laughs> well, my, mine wasn't quite telemarketing. I worked at this company in Minneapolis uh, in between jobs, it was it was right after nine eleven and everything fell apart. And uh, my job as a telemarketer was to call on people who hadn't made their car loan and try to get them to make their car loan payment. <laughs> so these people were already hurting in the first place. Then you had some <laughs> asshole like me going, "Hey, make your car payment." <laughs> oh, it was bad. It's <laughs> going to be repossessed. <laughs> <laughs> so that's awesome. So you spent 17 years at Safeway. Tell me about how you ended up at Oracle. Uh, yeah, so that's an interesting story. Um, at the time, I was not looking um, to move companies. Um, over my 17 years at Safeway, I, I've worked or worked essentially every part of IT, with the exception of information security. So any role that was there, any department, you know, because of how we rotated, I had worked all across IT. Um, at that point in time, I was leading some automation activities. So, you know, to go back seven, 10 years, you know, my teams were doing artificial intelligence. They were um, helping work with companies like HP and IBM and others to help mold products that would ultimately be sold. And, um, you know, it, it was a really exciting gig. And um, the CTO of HP had a conversation with the CIO of Oracle, Mark Sunday, at the time. And Mark had said, hey, you know, I'm, I'm really looking at kind of revamping the way that we do um, some of our IT practices. And at the time, um, Oracle was looking at purchasing some HP software that I was familiar with. And so the, the CIO of Oracle said, hey, you know, do you know anybody that would have experience that could help us transform? And uh, the CTO of HP had said, oh yeah, you know, I know this guy, Chris, you know, he works over at Safeway. 
He does a, a ton of stuff with us for automation and for service management and um, has done some things with IT for IT, which is essentially an IT framework. And um, he might be interested, you know, not even asking me first. He just threw my name out there. <laughs> and so I get a phone call from Mark Sunday, the CIO of, of uh, Oracle. He says, hey, you know, we're interested in, in um, you know, potentially uh, this type of position. Is that something that would be interesting to you? And so I had to think about it. And I had a couple of conversations with other folks um, at Oracle. Some would be peers. Um, one would be, you know, initially my manager. And um, it was just a huge opportunity um, to come in and really make such a huge difference in such a big company. I mean, you know, I didn't even realize at that point in time how broadly distributed Oracle software was. 40 billion devices. You know, it's it's huge. And so I would have a, a piece of that. And um, I was given a lot of autonomy coming in um, to basically observe, you know, what's going on within Oracle? What do we need to change? Um, because it was really uncommon that they would bring somebody in at my level versus promoting somebody from within. But they really wanted that outside influence, um, that outside you know, insight around you know, things that they're doing that need to be improved. Um, and that's what my job was for the first three years at Oracle is to influence change and introduce change. So it was really, really cool. So the big question I think everybody wants to know is, have you been to Larry Ellison's Island out in Hawaii? Uh, I have been in the water outside of it scuba diving, but I've never set foot on Lanai <laughs> or his boat or, you know, <laughs> a lot of people ask that, Oh, have you been on his yacht? No. <laughs> well, I know that, uh, doing some research here that, uh, I think it's like 99% of fortune 500 companies. It's, uh, Oracle's in there. Uh, software. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So from a commercial software perspective, yeah. And I mean, you run a cell phone, guess what? You have Oracle software on it. You know, you go to a, a website on your computer, you have Oracle software on it. So things, you know, that people don't always associate with Oracle, like Java, for example, you know, that's something that, that we help run, you know, common websites that are out there. Um, so, yeah, we're very broadly distributed. Um, if you look at our databases, you know, that's kind of the bread and butter of our business or was the bread and butter of our business. We've always been known for the Oracle database platform. Um, and that's used by a very large number of Fortune 500 companies. But then we have things like our ERP and human capital management software, um, which is also, you know, very broadly used as well. Um, yeah, so we're, we're out there for sure. So talk a little bit more. You, you talked a little bit at the beginning, but uh, now you're, you're in the Oracle cloud. So mm -hmm. talk about uh, how, how big is your team? Um, teams vary from day to day, really. Um, we do a lot of reshuffling. Um, and the reshuffling is based on kind of what you're working on and, and the demand. So um, over the, the course of the past year, I've gone anywhere from 250 people to 12 people. Um, and, you know, I would say every couple of months expect a change. 
um, as we're shifting projects around or shifting priority on projects, people kind of go with the work within the Oracle Cloud part of our business. Um, for me, it's never been about the number of people that report to me. It's always been about the value that the teams provide. Um, so right now, I have a team of 20, uh, 22 people, and um, they're primarily focused on things such as change automation and uh, looking at things like configuration management and how you tie configuration management into a native cloud environment. Um, you know, because you're spinning up web resources, you know, hundreds of thousands every second. So how do you actually track that in a traditional way? Um, things like knowledge management, things like um, uh, service mapping and, and all of that stuff. So I'm looking over these activities right now, um, but every month we go through and we revise our, what our plans are. And we go through a backlog refinement process and ultimately we'll reprioritize things and sometimes people shift with that. Can you talk about some of the things you're working on right now? Um, so the biggest thing that I'm trying to do right now is automating the, the entire change management process, cradle to grid. So from the time that an engineer or a developer checks in their code into a common repository, that automation takes it from that point and moves it all the way through the deployment pipeline. And we use orchestration, we use automation to update a change ticket to notify those that may be impacted or need to know about a change. Um, Essentially, what I want to do is remove the human out of the equation as it relates to change deployment release management. Um, it's a very significant effort when you're talking um, the number of resources that we have in a cloud environment. You know, you're talking hundreds of thousands of assets that you need to worry about. Um, you're talking hundreds of applications. Um, and you want to make sure that it's done with quality. So. How can you deploy something without causing impact? Especially looking at our cloud architecture, everything should be 100% available. But there's always that one or two you know, unique situations where if you don't do something exactly right, it could bring something down. Um, so those are all things that we have to build into it. Um, I'm all about um, reallocating traditional staff to work on how we improve productivity, how we drive simplification and efficiency within the organization. So if we are able to fully automate the change management, release management process, it's hundreds or thousands of hours that are saved every single month from people that would manually be deploying change or creating a change record, pushing a change down, validating the change, updating the change record. So this is just one effort right now where we're trying to gain labor hours back into the workforce so that we can improve our cloud offering to our customers. Well, it's cool to be a part of a startup that doesn't have any money problems. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, another kind of fun question that I like to throw in here is if, uh, if you live to be 100, would you rather have a sharp mind or a fit body? Oh, a sharp mind. I already have given up the body. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> <laughs> the, 
that went away a long time ago, and especially with 2020 out the window. Oh, <laughs> uh, I've been working on. I got that. I got that Peloton bike that I'm riding the hell out of at home. And uh, if I didn't ride that, I swear to God, it'd be 500 pounds. <laughs> oh yeah, no, I know the feeling. And you know, we're trying to to walk every day and you know do you know exercise where we can. Um, we've subscribed to the online kind of live class um, training that you can do with a personal trainer or do aerobics or kickboxing, that kind of stuff. But I mean, the reality is you're at home. So just like, you know, being in an office, you need somebody to motivate you as you're going through it. Yeah. I got to uh, get up at five 30 in the morning, jump on the bike. Johnny's getting up about six 30 or seven o'clock in the morning. Uh, there is no downtime at the zinc household. I'll tell you that much. Oh no, I could imagine. <laughs> Especially with a little one. Oh man, it, it, it's the best time too. He's like uh, two and a half right now, and this is the first Christmas where he understood what Santa Claus is all about, and it was it, it was wonderful. Now, was he afraid of Santa Claus? Because you have a beard, so it, usually the beard throws off kids. No, he uh, he absolutely loves Santa Claus. So uh, yeah. we went to uh, we went to visit uh, a, an old neighbor who she had Santa Claus come and visit out front with all of the lights and stuff. And uh, she actually had a sleigh set up and everything else. It was over the top. And uh, Johnny just sat up there in the sleigh next to Santa Claus as long as he possibly could. I'm like, come on, kid. There's other kids coming. <laughs> you know, I felt like the elf on uh, Christmas story. Like, come on, kid. <laughs> Stores closing. Well, I got to tell you, because I've seen Johnny and that kid is going to be a tank when he grows older. Oh, he's going to so be huge. Start prepping him for being a linebacker now. <laughs> well, I just I just set up uh, the little tykes uh, basketball hoop uh, today. Oh, nice! And he's already got a Minnesota Vikings football helmet, so we're getting him <laughs> ready. I'm setting him up for a bunch of heartache to be a Minnesota Vikings fan like me. <laughs> so, um, what? In all of your life, what is the most notable event that happened in your life that led you to where you are today? Um, you know, I, my my wife and I just celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary. Happy anniversary. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. And uh, we were talking about this um, as we were celebrating our anniversary over dinner. And I think the number one event that really changed my life was having our first child. So, um, you know, prior to that, you know, I was still a reckless kid, you know, went out, partied, you know, did all the stuff, you know, 20 something year old kid does. And um, it wasn't until Chase was born that I really had a, a sense of responsibility as an adult. Um, and that, that led to a whole lot of other kind of changes. Um, you know, ultimately it, it led me to change my career and to, um, you know, take on different types of roles. It also kind of promoted me to be a risk taker. You know, so even though I've always had that, that gene and always been a risk taker, not necessarily from a professional standpoint. You know, in my jobs, I kind of just took what was given to me and, did my job really well. Um, but 
you know, having a child and kind of challenging myself with that whole thing. Maybe it was the lack of sleep. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but, you know, ultimately it, it, it did change a lot of things. Well, I think that's why they call them calculated risks. Yeah. You know, at one time I took every risk possible, you know, without even thinking about it. And uh, now I look both ways before I go across the street. You know, I do. I uh, literally uh, Chris and I were talking about it the other day. I'm sitting at a stoplight and turns green and I still look both ways just to make sure there's nothing coming before before I would have trusted the light and trusted everybody's going to stop. You know, it's like now, now I actually, I, I calculate the risks a lot more now than I ever did before. And just like you, it's all because of that two and a half year old at home that I think a lot more about what I'm doing than I did before when it was just me. So I can tell you, both my kids are out of the house now. We're empty nesters as of, you know, a couple of years ago. Um, and yeah, it's a good feeling. You know, you're, you're starting this whole new phase in your life again. But that reckless recklessness that you had in your twenties starts to creep back into your life again <laughs> when you're empty nester. So, just you know, just forewarning, you know, you you still have a number of years to go, but that will come back around to haunt you again. Well, a question just came up. So, I know a lot of people in my age group, your age group, that are going through that now. You know, not not a lot of people in my age group have a two and a half year old at home. Um, how was it for you and Jane going through that process of having the kids leave the house? I've heard a lot of people have had some issues with that and go through some depression and some other things, or some people celebrate, yeah. <laughs> you know, how was it for you? But all right. So when you have your first kid, everything is sterile, everything is nice, everything is perfect. And you realize when you have your second child, yeah, everything doesn't have to be sterile. Everything doesn't have to be perfect. So we went through kind of that same um, set of emotions with our kids leaving the house. Um, my son, Chase, ended up going to my alma mater, UNC, University of Northern Colorado. Um, and we cried like babies when he left. We're like, we don't think that we can do this. And called him every single day. He, you know, of course, never answered his phone, but... You know, we still tried to call him every single day. Um, and then when our daughter Alyssa went to uh, Lehigh out in Pennsylvania, it was a little bit easier. Um, but what we found is now that both kids are out of the house, um, you know, we definitely miss them a lot more than what we ever thought we would. But we also appreciate the together time that we have as parents, as empty nesters. Um, and you know, we're starting a whole new series of adventures that Jane and I wanted to do. Um, I wouldn't say that we ever had depression. We had some loneliness. We, you know, we miss our kids every single day. No question about that. Um, we are such a family-oriented group that um, not having family dinners every single night, you know, we miss that. Um, you know, growing up or as our kids were growing up, we had dinner together every single night and um, I don't care what my workload was like or what was going on. We had to have dinner together every single night and no devices, nothing at the table other than ourselves. And there was one question, well, actually two questions that 
we would ask the kids every single night, which is what was the best part of your day? We would have a detailed conversation around the best part of their day. And what was the worst part of their day? We would talk about, you know, what didn't go so well. So almost had like a retrospective of the day and really connected with our kids because we had that honest conversation um, to find out what was happening in their lives. Um, you know, now when we have conversations with our kids, we'll talk to our kids on the phone for an hour plus and just, you know, go through what's happening in their lives. You know, we want to be part of it and we've been able to maintain that going forward. I love it. There's, there, there's a lot of that missing today, you know, there with the, with the different uh, devices like you talked about before and uh, all the extracurricular activities going on. You know, a lot of, I think of what is missing is that sitting down and just having you know, almost like what you talked about before, missing that human interaction like you are at work. Um, also, mm-hmm. missing that human interaction at home. Well, and it's hard now. I mean, especially with, you know, with forced separation. Um, you know, our family, as well as many others, are having a hard time, you know, bonding, you know, connecting. Um, and we saw that over Christmas. You know, normally for Christmas, we have a very extended get-together. You know, the general ones all get together and we all have, you know, this, this big family gathering and you know, this is the first year we didn't. So, you know, you can try to substitute it through Zoom or, you know, other ways, but it's just not the same. Do you think it's more essential to develop beliefs or to gain knowledge? Hmm. Um, I think having a belief drives gaining knowledge. Um, and you need to start there. You have to have a passion. You have to believe in something. And most importantly, you have to believe in yourself before all other. Um, if you do not believe in yourself, you're not going to go out. You're not going to push the boundaries. You're not going to try to learn a new skill or gain new knowledge. Um, so it all starts with having a belief. And having that belief in yourself is probably the most important thing. Um, you know, I see a lot of the younger workforce coming in that doesn't necessarily have that yet. And so you have to be able to challenge them so that they build trust in themselves, so that they can believe in themselves. Um, you know, show them how their contributions really play towards you know, benefiting others, benefiting the team. I think sometimes um, you almost have to believe in them for them until they can believe in themselves, you know, because, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, my background is I've went through a 12 step program, been sober about six and a half years. And one of the things they say in there is come in here, let us love you until you can figure out how to love yourself, you know? And since I've gone through that 12 step program uh, and I'm still actively in it, I see how to use all of those different things that I've learned in everyday life, in my job, at home, everywhere, or driving down the street so I don't try to, you know, rip somebody's head off to cut me off in traffic. <laughs> you know, just stuff like that, you know, because if you just look at it real quick and see that that person cut you off because maybe they're having a bad day and who really cares in the first place, um, yeah. it just makes, it makes my life so much easier. But what you just said reminded me of all those times where I heard somebody say, I'll believe in you. And one of these days, maybe you'll believe in yourself too. 
So uh, I really appreciate that point. So are you an avid reader? I am not an avid reader, no. Um, I read when something piques my interest um, or um, if I want to learn something, um, I'll do that. I'm a very visual person. Um, so being kind of time bound into a book, um, sometimes that's um, you know, a little painful for me, if you will. I'd rather get my hands on and do something. But there are you know, quite a few books that, that you know, I, I've really enjoyed reading. Well, I got, uh, I'm pretty much an audiobook guy. I, I can't read anything, yeah. I swear. Audiobook on the road or in an airplane, I'm good to go for hours. Um, but uh, are, are there any books that you have read that you think would be a good read for anybody who else is uh, who's listening or watching this? Absolutely. So if, if you haven't read The Phoenix Project by Gene Kim, highly recommend that. Um, that's one of those books that I've read probably four or five times now. Um, and it's a very, very quick read. You can do it over the course of a couple afternoons. And um, I think everybody that works in the business world will be able to relate to it. Um, and, and really the premise of the story is that um, there's a team that just doesn't work that well together. And they're not efficient, they're not effective, um, there's all kinds of delays in the work that they do. Um, so a, um, a person's come in to help, you know, get them reorganized. And um, it walks through the process. And, and really, it's about understanding DevOps and Agile more than anything else. Um, but the principles, you know, can be applied anywhere in the business. It's not just IT. It can be applied in your daily lives. You know, I've talked with Jane about how to take some of what's in the Phoenix Project and apply that to how she runs a classroom. You know, things like visualizing your work, you know, seeing right in front of you, what do I have to do today? A to-do list, a bulletin board, whatever it may be. Um, things around having the conversation, things around accepting failure, you know, failing forward, you might hear that term. Um, these are all things that are described in the book. Um, and it leans a little bit on things like lean manufacturing and lean startup. Um, so there's some examples to what Toyota did, um, but there's also, you know, a lot of agile principles in there that really help, um, you know, run with the team better or, you know, run your work better. And it was the Phoenix Project by who? Gene Kim. Gene Kim. And uh, kind of speaking about Jane there and her job, um, how, how is she dealing with uh, the distance learning or should I say, how are her kids dealing with the distance learning? Uh, it's an adventure every day. Um, you know, when, when COVID started and um, we were talking about the kids coming back to school, and Jane's first concern was, oh, they're not going to want to wear masks all day long, you know, in the classroom. And what she found out the day, the first day that they were back, the kids were adaptable, you know. The, the mask didn't bother them. They bothered Jane more than the kids. Um, as they're kind of going between in-classroom learning and distance learning, um, the kids, again, um, are pretty adaptable you know, to it. Um, remote learning is a little bit more of a challenge you know, for eighth graders. You know, they're a little fidgety. And so keeping them focused has been a little bit more difficult. But um, you know, but they're working through it. 
You know, it, it's, it's a challenge for everybody. Um, I think what is probably a, a bigger challenge for most of the kids is when you have to go back and forth. So kind of switching from in-person to remote to in-person to remote, um, because that, that type of situation is more disruptive. Yeah. I, I wouldn't be able to do it. I, I, I need, I get up at the same time every day. I almost eat the same thing every <laughs> noon hour. You know, it's just like, I'm such a creature of habit, um, that I, I just, I, I can't even imagine. So, um, I, I, I hope this is over sooner than later, just for everybody's uh, sake, uh, mostly for those kids, you know? So at the end of the true ambition podcast, I ask everybody the same question. So like I said before, through the true ambition was taken out of taken out of one of the 12 and uh, a book called the 12 and 12 from my 12 step program. And it says the true ambition is not what we thought it was. True ambition is the profound desire to live usefully and walk humbly under the grace of God. When I read that five plus years ago, it kind of changed my perspective and changed my life. Um, I figured out that uh, what I was doing for most of my life, as far as my ambition or me being ambitious, I was chasing a lot of the wrong things. Um, when I changed it over to be more of a servant and go out and do things for the right reasons, my life changed. Um, so what I ask everybody at the end of this is being where you've been, going through what you've gone through, through your life, what is your true ambition moving forward, both in your personal life and in your professional life? I think they're one and the same, to be honest. Um, and that is to make others around me happy. Um, everything I do um, is centered around that philosophy that I will go out of my way um, to help somebody out, to course correct something when it goes wrong, um, to make others successful. So um, nothing drives me more than seeing somebody get it, to, to see their happiness as they go through it. Um, and so I'll always go above and beyond to see that smile, to see that somebody really is enjoying what they're doing. And again, either professionally or personally. Um, I do that with friends, I do that with family, and um, you know, whatever I can do to make those around me, you know, happier with you know their current situation, then I'm golden. You know, that that's my satisfaction is watching the joy off others. That's why I like you so much. We've got the same true ambition. Nice. Well, Chris Genuine, thank you so much for being here today. Uh, I appreciate it. And uh, I'd like to thank everybody for tuning in today to the True Ambition Podcast. We'll see you next time. The True Ambition Podcast is brought to you by IT Avalon. For more information and links to other episodes, please visit www.trueambition.org. Now, go find your true ambition. Yeah.